From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly conversation on the changing business of energy and clean tech. I'm Stephen Lacey. Well, we made it. There are just two weeks left of 2016. And you know what? This is it. This is the last show of the year. It's been such a crazy 12 months that we are packing it up early. And I, for one, am grabbing my backpack and my girlfriend, dropping my computer and microphone, and camping out in the Chilean Andes for a few weeks. Seriously. But before we call it a year, we are obligated to strap you in and take you with us on a ride through all the twists and turns of this year of our Lord, 2016. My co-hosts are with me, the trusty companions to all of us this year. Catherine Hamilton is a partner at 38 North Solutions. She is in Washington, D.C., Catherine, what are you doing to close out the year and start 2017 with some positivity? Well, I might drop my mic at the end of the show, too, but we stay here and have all of our children come and visit us. So we spend a lot of time. We're closed between Christmas and New Year's, and so I just hunker down with hot cocoa and all my kids and watch Holiday Inn and other you know Home Alone movies and uh, have a great time with my family. Can't beat that. I had the Christmas tree up extra early this year to give myself some extra comfort. Jigger Shah is the president of Generate Capital. He's in New York City. What about you, Jigger? Are you you closing out the year with anything special, taking a shower, dumping stock? What? (laughs) Well, you know, I don't have a presidential campaign to fund, so I didn't sell uh, a bunch of stock. But I I think, um, uh, well, we're going to Chicago. Both of our parents are from there. So we'll spend some time with the grandparents. And then um, we're going to Pennsylvania, to Amish country, for New Year's with a friend. And so it'll be fun. Well, let's just get this going because we have so much to cover. For this year's review, we've chosen our top stories in federal policy, state policy, international trends, business deals, and technological advances. And we're also firing up the Predictometer for 2017 to see if we can wager some bets and also see if Jigger will have to buy me some more cocktails in 2017. This is going to be a little bit more rapid fire than usual because we have so many areas to cover. So let's just get right to the federal story that is at the top of everyone's minds this week. Trump's latest cabinet picks. You could not choose a cabinet that looks any different from the last eight years. And this has to be my federal story of the year. ExxonMobil CEO Rex Tillerson was chosen for Secretary of State. Texas Governor Rick Perry was chosen to lead the Energy Department. If you'll remember, he famously called for shutting down DOE in 2011 but forgot which agency it was during a primary debate. And Oklahoma Attorney General Scott Pruitt will lead EPA, a guy who has fought environmental protections over the course of his career. Tillerson has been lukewarm on climate. Perry and Pruitt are outright climate deniers. Catherine, aside from curling up in a ball in the corner, what's your reaction to these picks? Oh, and don't forget Congressman Ryan Zink from Montana for Interior Department. Um, yeah, so um, it's it's really kind of horrifying to think that you get people into agencies who don't believe in the mission of the agencies. Um, I think that the silver lining is that there are a lot of really good career people in those agencies who've been doing work through multiple administrations and understand how to keep going in a way that's still very productive. So that's where we have to kind of hope on the inside of those agencies. And then on the outside, I think people really have to just 
continue to put pressure on them because the public really does want to have clean air and clean drinking water and to continue to make sure that EPA upholds its mission to protect human health and that all the other agencies continue to do what their what their missions are and have the public and outside organizations put support on them to do that. I think it's important to mention, we were discussing this before hitting the record button, it's really hard to fire federal employees because of union representation and because of, you know, all the legal minutia associated with their benefits. So just completely eliminating an agency is very difficult, right, Catherine? It really is. I remember when I worked at the Department of Energy, it was it was a while ago, but there was a woman in that office who'd been there since the Eisenhower administration. And uh, yeah, yeah. So there are a lot of career people that are really driven by the mission of their organization and are willing to live through various, you know, feast and famines in their, you know, in their leadership and still continue to work. Jigger, what do you think about Tillerson? So I, you know, I choose to look at the glass half full, right? Because I'm not looking at this from a climate perspective. I'm looking at this from a clean tech perspective. I think having an a secretary of state that's really steeped in energy um, is a big deal. And I, and I do think that there's a difference between someone who was representing their corporate interests and their corporate shareholders in terms of spreading, you know, climate denial or all those things, and someone who is now serving the public. And in a lot of different conversations with governments, there are many governments around the world who simply don't have oil and gas to frack. I mean, they have wind and solar to mine, right? And so when Rex Tillerson's trying to cut a deal and getting a government official to do something that the U.S. wants him to do, what he has at his disposal is American wind and solar companies that want to export to those countries. And so I, the same thing's true with Rick Perry. Like I, I, there's a guy there that basically was the longest serving governor of Texas. So he clearly knows how to manage the politics of Texas, which is very, very difficult. And he, you know, presided over the largest expansion of wind power in the nation's history. And I think, you know, when you look at where solar is predicted to go under the next 10 years or next five years in Texas, it looks to be the largest growth state in the country. And so, I don't know, I just, I choose to look at the glass half full here. I think that's generally how I'm looking at it as well. We do need to separate climate policy from energy policy. Now, will Rick Perry go in DOE and probably strip down programs? Yeah, I think that's definitely possible. Will he go in there and completely try to eliminate um, whole swaths of DOE? My sense is that when he gets in there, he won't try to do that. And I do think you're correct that he has been shown to be an energy pragmatist. What we do have to remember, though, is that Perry sits on the board of directors for Energy Transfer Partners, the company that is trying to build the Dakota Access Pipeline. He has a lot of financial stake in fossil fuels, which we, he will obviously have to uh, divest when he goes to the Department of Energy. And this guy is, you know, given his support of wind and wind specific policy in Texas, I think he'll probably have an open mind about renewables. But 
The emphasis on fossil within DOE is very likely, given his close ties to the oil industry. And remember, his whole approach in the RPS in Texas was pro-business. So they have a lot of natural resources. So wind and solar, as well as oil and gas, make a lot of sense in Texas. So you know, his whole approach is a business approach. And so we'll have to kind of see how that jives with what DOE really does, which is research. Well, actually, most of what DOE does is is weapons and you know man- managing the nuclear arsenal, which is not pro business, but you know, the rest of it, you know, maybe he'll be able to figure out how do we connect what we're doing on research to business, and that would be really a positive movement. Um, but I think there's there's a lot of education that has to be done first in order for someone coming in who doesn't of any who has not had any experience, and this hap- this is true for all of these um, people who have been nominated to come into an agency that they don't understand and try to come up to speed on what that agency does, what its mission is, and where, you know, what are all the pieces and parts that move within it. I also think that we haven't had a real energy plan in this country since Carter administration. Um, you know, Dick Cheney and George Bush tried to put together an energy framework, which, you know, by which they passed the Energy Policy Acts of 05 and 07. But, you know, what I'm hoping for, the reason I don't like a physicist as the head of DOE is they don't actually know how to be a politician. And I think Rick Perry does know how to be a politician and will hobnob with all the congressmen that are, you know, on the relevant committees in the House and the Senate. And they will try to figure out what the consensus is around energy policy, whether we like it or not. This country, you know, needs an energy policy. And I think that a politician is more likely to create an energy policy and an energy consensus with all the relevant decision makers. Still, that may be the case, but this will be fossil heavy energy policy if that does, I don't agree uh, get- I still I'm still sticking by my numbers 400 billion dollars is going to go into new solar and wind over the next six or seven years and so I just all I'm saying is that like I, I just I just think that when you think about somebody who's pro-business it's about having a point of view and having that point of view you know sort of discussed openly with um, Wall Street bankers and other folks right and I think that when you think about all the relevant politicians, whether they're in Iowa or Kansas or Nebraska or Oklahoma, a lot of these states are the epicenter for wind. I mean, Wyoming, you know, and the same thing's true for solar, whether it's Nevada or eastern Oregon or eastern Washington or some of these other places, you know, that is where we're looking to build, you know, 100 megawatt, 50 megawatt power plants. Um, And so I do think that these secretaries will be responsive to the congressmen and senators from those areas that want to see economic development in their territories. So now we have to make sure we get to Congress, though, because a lot of those and so that's that's definitely where I think we need to be uh, leaning is on Congress and making sure they understand where those jobs are, because then they can come back and help educate their secretary. Yeah, the solar and wind industry have been piss poor. I mean, I can't whoa, even whoa, whoa. how have they been pissed if, poor? I mean, in, in, in terms of reaching out to their congressmen and in terms of actually explaining to them the positive stories in their, that come out of their projects, they basically are uniformly, they've always been uniformly focused on extending the ITC, but they have not been good at actually getting faces to the numbers that the Solar Foundation puts forward in each district such that these congressmen actually know a person or multiple people who actually work in their district creating jobs. Over the last six years, we have seen a a blossoming of ribbon cuttings and local events for projects that feature members of Congress and 
people who work at local solar businesses. So you cannot say that the solar industry has not attempted to put a face to those jobs. I just did say, and when you look at the the, the write-up that I did in Green Tech Media about how the environmental groups have largely been the folks who have 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 told our story for us and have told it in a way that we're like, you know, like soft sunflowers blowing in the breeze. We are not considered fracking, which we should be. We are, when you think about the engineering marvels that GE has had to figure out to ship wind turbine parts around the country to be able to put these up, we are just as robust and strong in American innovation as anything in the oil and gas industry, but we're viewed as this fragile flower. I think it's less about who we talk to and how many people the industry is getting into see as in how we talk about it. So that's something going forward next year when we talk about 2017 that I want to cover is how we talk about these jobs and economic growth engine. A lot more we could say about those picks. And uh, when, when they actually get into office and start making decisions, we'll discuss them more. Catherine, you've got a pretty sizable lift, list of top federal stories for 2016. What are they? Right. So the year started with a bang on January 18th, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, when the Supreme Court handed out the down to the decision to uphold 6-2, order 745 of FERC, which upheld demand response in the energy markets, which was a red letter day as far as I was concerned. And then the bookend to that is that on November 30th in um, the Federal Register, FERC issued a storage and distributed energy aggregation NOPER, which is a proposed rulemaking announcement um, that people are going to be commenting on in the new year. And so to me, this just signals, you know, FERC is moving forward on, um, you know, trying to open up markets to innovation and is having great success and has avoided being politicized, which I love. Should I go on to other stories? Also. Yeah, list them all okay. out. All right. So another big thing, of course, was EPA's clean power plan and understanding that that will be under assault. It was a huge thing to get done and finalized this year. Investments started shifting, and it also sent a signal internationally that we were moving forward. Um, whether or not that continues, I think we're already going down that road. Also, I don't know if everybody noticed, but yesterday EPA released their final report on impacts from fracking activities on drinking water, and they've really doubled down on the fact that it can impact drinking water resources and uh, and has listed the dangers of what those are. So that was a big deal that just came out. Um, so that's EPA. Well, we definitely... We definitely pushed that on the energy gang, and I'm glad we that they listened. We did, definitely. They, their final report was much more bullish than their previous one. Um, and then Department of Interior has done a lot on wildlife regulation, you know, some, you know, to varying degrees of success for birds, bats, and eagles. The eagle rule is expected to be issued either at the end of this year or early next year uh, before the end of the administration. Then there are methane rules, the pipeline issues coming out of Interior. So it, Interior was really, really busy this year. And then on Congress, unfortunately, while they were busy, there wasn't as much accomplished. Um, the energy bill never made it over the finish line. Those orphaned tax credits that were, um, you know, the solar and wind folks got in the omnibus at the end of 2015, but the orphan, you know, CHP, fuel cells, all those guys did not make it in at the end of this year. So unfortunately, that didn't go over the finish line. Um, But still a lot from the administration in 2016. Obama is definitely going out with a bang. Also an indication that a lot more could potentially change within these agencies than just the clean power plan and um you know a general direction on climate policy you are talking about clean 
drink clean water regulations, wildlife regulations, these methane rules, as you pointed out, pipeline siting. There's just so much in here that's going to be impacted. So we can't ignore those. How much do you think can be unwound given what was accomplished in 2016? I mean, can this just be an overnight unwinding, Catherine? Not when you have final rules. There's a process you have to go through, and it will take some time, and it will take some very skilled work to do that. That's not to say they can't. But when you go through a rulemaking process, most of which takes years to to accomplish, you've already started shifting industry. Industry is part of the stakeholder process and has already had an enormous amount of input. So another set of regulations that were just issued were some more appliance um, regulations and appliance standards. And those are in part very supported by industry that's already started shifting their investments and started shifting the way that they manufacture and sell product. So you know, you may be able to do some things on the agency level. It does take time. But then, you know, it's very hard to turn back industry once they've already made investment decisions. Brad Plumer did a great piece on this in Vox, where he in, he interviewed uh, Jody um, Freeman, um, who basically went through this point by point and basically said it was impossible. That basically, Who's Jody Freeman? So Jody used to be in the Obama White House. She was uh, She's a Harvard professor and former climate advisor to Obama. And she's looked at this extensively. And the Bush administration tried to roll back a bunch of stuff under Clinton. And the courts have ruled that, in fact, the government is required to take the side of the existing uh, arguments that, the, the, that they use to put the policy in place. So they can't, the government actually can't change their mind officially once they go through this process. What they can say is, we did this wrong. And using the exact same arguments, we actually come to a different conclusion but they can't actually say we have a political bent, so we're going to change it. So the Bush administration tried to change like 40 rules and only officially got one changed. So it's almost impossible to change these rules once. Well, they're- yeah, and the agencies can slow walk, so the so they can you know underfund the people who have to execute on the regulation. Um, but you're right; it takes a lot to overturn it. Jigger, how about your federal pick or picks for 2016? Well, given given the extensive list that Catherine went through, I don't know that I'm going to add a whole bunch. Um, but what I would say is that there's a new rule that, that the administrator um, is trying to push through by um, inauguration, which is um, allowing electric vehicles to get credits under the renewable fuel standard. They've already got a pathway designated. There's already two applications. It's under public comment right now. And the public comment period will end four days before the end of um, the Obama administration. And so she's got a four-day window to make it final, and it'll basically allow for electric vehicles to qualify under the renewable portfolio standard through helping dairy farmers in with anaerobic digesters. I don't know how they can physically get that done, Jigger, given when the public I comment... I know, but literally every automaker is on top of this. So every single automaker's lobbyist wants this to happen. The White House and Brian Deese and... DC and like, you know, Dan uh, Utrecht and everybody's on top of it. I don't know whether it's going to happen or not, but this is something the administrator could physically do all the, because the rule was, was published early 2016 already. So they can just make that final. Um, and all the comments that are coming in right now are positive. So I don't know. We'll see. The key takeaway here is that the major changes that people are predicting under this new administration don't just happen easily. And there's a lot of legal maneuvering 
and many years of work to start unraveling this stuff, beyond the executive orders, that is. Okay, state policy. Catherine, you've got another sizable list here. Lay it on us. Yeah, so I'll just mention a couple of things. One is, you know, solar has continued to be under assault in some states, and yet there have been some big wins. The conversation is really shifting away from net metering to more of a value of distributed energy resources. And I and so that's become a new part of the conversation is like, how do you value all of these resources since solar does no longer operate kind of necessarily on its own anymore? So um, that's been a big shift. Um, energy storage has t- continued to be a big source of state policy. Massachusetts issued that state of storage report, state of charge report on storage, which was pretty uh, groundbreaking and I think will lead to a mandate in Massachusetts and potentially in other states. Um, And then finally, something that happened kind of recently um, was in Illinois. They passed a law that will bail out the nuclear power plants. They did do a little fix on the RPS, but that's something we need to watch out for because the nuclear industry is, you know, those plants are not cost effective. They're not they're not able to participate and and, um, meet the auctions. And so there have been there have been calls for more bailouts and uh, for other plants. We'll kind of have to see how that goes. Jigger, you were following that particular policy development in Illinois very closely. Does that top your list as well? Yeah, I think the two biggest stories, you know, in my mind is the the New York um, RPS story and then the the Illinois deal, which, you know, both basically utilized, you know, the nuclear energy industry and got them to partner with the, reno- the renewable energy industry. Um, the other story that I would just highlight in a really big way is that we unlocked Florida this year. And I think Florida is going to be one of the fastest growing market in the solar industry next year. I have another positive trend going into 2017, and that is that the majority of states, 33 states plus D.C., have already decoupled their emissions from economic growth. So from 2000 to 2015, America grew its national GDP 30%, while emissions declined 10%. A few of those years after 2007 can obviously be attributed to economic troubles after the recession. But there were many years before then and after then where we saw this split from GDP growth and emissions. And what this tells us is that clean energy federalism is alive and well. Um, Nuclear power and natural gas prices had the biggest impact. And obviously shifts to service-based economies, which can be both good and bad, Um, All that stuff is playing into decarbonization within states. That trend will likely continue whether or not we see the clean power plan. And uh, these 33 states are probably going to continue to lower their emissions. And I think going into the it's a complex set of factors. Um, Renewables are still playing a limited role in most states. But I think it's another positive story to hang on to in 2017 because federalism is going to be the most important driver for renewables and decarbonization going forward under this presidency. And that has already taken hold. All right, we expand outside of local stories in the U.S. to our top international stories. And I guess I'll just go first. Mine was the rise of auctions in solar procurement. More countries are setting up competitive bidding systems for solar, and the results have been pretty stunning, actually. Mexico saw record procurements after market reform this year, 
and throughout Latin America, the same story is playing out. This is causing record low prices. So in May, solar bids in Dubai came in at 2.99 cents. In August, a bid in Chile came in at 2.91 cents. And in September, a bid came through in Abu Dhabi for 2.4 cents. And I think it's still unclear if these companies are going to make any money off these bids, but it's an indication that, surprise, competitive bidding works. And um, we've exited the era of feed-in tariffs and entered the era of auctions, and this is definitely the future of solar policy around the world. So I don't love that. I mean, I, I think auctions lead to unsustainably low prices and projects that don't get completed, but that's an argument for another day. I think you're right on the trend. Um, I mean, my story is that India, you know, built the largest solar plant in the world, um, uh, which is kind of surprising, right? You would have thought it came out of China, um, but they built a 648 megawatt project, which kicks the former champion Topaz um, in California, which had 550 megawatts. Um, and then I think on the back of that, I think with the Trump um, election, you know, there was a lot of extraordinary comments coming out of China, India, Brazil, and others about how they thought that they were going to maintain the Paris Agreement because um, it was good politics and business for their countries, which I think is an extraordinary international story that we weren't expecting just last year. Yeah, definitely. My story is the Paris Agreement, 115 parties, 193 signatories that was uh, inked on April 22nd and became effective November 4th. And the big piece of that, again, is that Obama and Kerry worked so hard to craft that deal with China and have also been working with other countries such that, you know, now those countries are seeing this as a real competitive advantage if we don't go forward with our own greenhouse gas emission reductions. So I like that. I like the fact that we were able to participate wholeheartedly, get a lot done before Obama leaves office, and then others will continue. It's a pretty remarkable feat, too. Uh, I was talking to Andy Revkin of the New York, formerly of the New York Times, now of ProPublica, about this. And he said what it what it tells us is that over 190 countries can come together and agree that the perfect is the enemy of the good and that we can build off of this agreement. And for the first time, after basically decades of negotiations, countries were able to come together and agree on a voluntary framework, which is so difficult to do. And um, there, you know, there, a lot could be said about the limitations of this agreement. But the fact that these countries could come together and say, we don't want a perfect agreement. Here's how we can create something that we can then build off of in future years is fairly remarkable. Well, I'll I'll add to that and just say it's a it's a you know a vote of confidence for my angle, which has been climate wealth, which I think, you know, we really screwed up in two thousand nine in the Copenhagen um, negotiations, and I'm glad we pivoted to how this actually you know is a source of wealth creation, not shared sacrifice. And to be fair, the situation was so different in two thousand nine compared to two thousand fifteen. You just had to I'm... believe in two thousand nine. Yeah, exactly. What are the top business deals of the year? Jigger, you go first on this one. Well, so there's certainly a lot of business deals that we can talk about. I think one of the top business deals is the um, solar plus storage um, project that was completed in American Samoa by Tesla. I really do think that um, getting that done and showing that you can actually you know, provide power to uh, people that live there is is a big deal. The other big deals that I wanted to highlight were um, 
were the fuel cell space, right? So whether it's Bloom Energy or whether it's fuel cell energy that got a big deal done with uh, PNC Bank or Plug Power that got a big deal done with us. Um, I think the fuel cell space, which has not gotten a lot of love. Um, Particularly in, from GTM's Eric Wessoff. Yeah, um, I think has had a real breakout year. And I think going forward, um, that will get even better. So, um, so I mean, those are maybe more obscure um, deals that aren't necessarily in the headlines with um, uh, solar and wind. But, but I do think that we're getting this broader base of support from the finance community and the business community uh, to clean tech applications. Catherine, what about you? Yeah, the two big business stories that I paid attention to this year, one was the demise of Sun Edison, which was just heartbreaking and I did not think had to happen the way it did. Um, luckily, the the incredibly talented folks who worked there must have start, gone forward and started new companies or are working with uh, existing companies. So that was one of the big stories. And then the other one was offshore wind. Block Island just finally uh, came online this week, and I think that's a, that's a really good sign for offshore generally. I have four deals that I'm going to rip through really quickly. One is Oracle's acquisition of O-Power for half a billion dollars. A decent exit for O-Power, I think not what people necessarily expected after they went public in terms of their performance, but it shows how tough selling software to utilities is. Anyone who's in this business knows how incredibly hard and long these sales cycles are. And it was very clear that O-Power needed Oracle's scale to get to the next level. My next one is Total's acquisition of SAFT for $1.1 billion. It is indicative, in my opinion, of the next wave of oil industry investments in distributed energy and renewable energy. Just one of a few big announcements from oil majors on that front. We have to remember that this is still just a percent or a couple percent of the total capital expenditures of the top super majors. So I don't want to oversell this, but there were a few deals among the super majors and among massive utilities for that matter in 2016 that show the biggest energy companies in the world are starting to take these sectors seriously. We can't forget about Tesla's acquisition of SolarCity for $2 billion dollars. The question I have is, under Tesla, will SolarCity become more of a product-focused company? And what will be the jobs impact of that acquisition in 2017? Certainly sweeping changes to come next year. And finally, NRG bought up $144 million of SunEdison's assets, which um, I think says a lot about SunEdison's collapse this year, but also about NRG's renewed renewables strategy. They divested from electric vehicles, from personalized power, but still kept up the pace in CNI energy management and in large-scale renewable energy power plant development. And buying up $144 million of Sun Edison's assets proves that they're still investing heavily in renewable power plants. And then I guess, oh, finally, I have one here on my list, which I put on the last minute, and that is the approval of EDF's Hinkley Point C plant. It's a 3.2 gigawatt nuclear plant in Great Britain. It'll provide 7% of Britain's electricity, probably cost more than the $24 billion price tag. And at the same time of this approval, the UK has eased off of renewables. Of course, it is in the process of exiting from the European Union, and it is pressing the accelerator on nuclear. So this is an important test case, I think, for the economics of nuclear versus renewables in developed countries. And that was a big development in 2016. 
We move on now to technological advances. Catherine, what makes the top of your list? Yeah, there were two things. One was this extraordinary declining cost of storage. Um, I've been involved in the World Economic Forum for this is going to be my second two-year cycle. And two years ago, when I went uh, for my first meeting on the future of electricity, I started talking about energy storage, and everybody looked at me like I had two heads. They said, like, is that a thing? This year, two years later, I walk in and everybody's talking about energy storage and saying it has to be at the top of the list. It's a thing that I don't even have to talk about anymore because it's there. And that's phenomenal to me. And the second big story is autonomous vehicles. And, uh, you know, Uber's already breaking the rules on self-driving cars in San Francisco. But this is an industry that's kind of taken off on its own. And I think that's another huge technological advance. Yeah, when we start off the year, we're going to be talking about autonomous vehicles with Joshua Goldman of the Union of Concerned Scientists, who's been studying this area very closely and can talk about what could make or break autonomous vehicles, and more importantly, how they can be used to clean up uh, the transportation sector, because it could actually be bad for transportation emissions if policy is not constructed in the right way. And on the storage front, completely agree. I think I said this after the ESA conference this year, the Energy Storage Association conference, that it started, you know, storage is starting to feel like a real industry. And last week we had our storage summit at GTM. And what really stood out to me in my conversations with folks in the hallways and on stage was that people can now talk about real world deployments and rather than theoretical procurements or business models. And so 2016 was when the storage industry started coming into its own, and we could start to judge performance in terms of deal-making and grid services. Jigger, how about you? Well, as many of you know, I am you know, certainly um, a real Luddite when it comes to technology, because I'm trying to figure out how to finance it. So I guess my my picks are going to be things that I think um, the finance industry is finally paying attention to. So one area is microgrids. Um, we've talked a lot about microgrids, but I don't think that they actually have come together in ways that people thought they would um, a few years ago. And so I think that you'll see a tremendous amount of um, progress, I think, on software in particular on the microgrid side over the next year. And so I'm really um, jazzed up around that. Um, the second one is thermal storage. I mean, this is a 50, 70, 100-year-old technology around like ice storage. But I think that with the Southern California Edison contracts for ice energy and Evapricool, um, as well as with CalMac, I think that you're seeing a resurgence in the project finance capability of those companies um, uh, in that space. And so I'm really, um, I'm really looking forward uh, to that piece of it. And I guess the third piece of it is that um, you know, solar hot water, which is God knows been around since Carter put it on the White House, um, is finally converting itself into solar thermal writ large around solar thermal for air conditioning, solar thermal for other purposes for manufacturers. Process who want steam. To... Yeah, exactly. And so I think for a long time, we sort of focused either on solar hot water for domestic water use or CSP plants like Ivanpah. And now I think folks are starting to realize that they actually need to come into their own. And so that, I think, is an application that a, a bunch of finance providers are looking at right now. And, um, you know, on on thinking about how business models are evolving in terms of tech, bringing different technologies together, geothermal is 
you know, developers like Ormat are starting to pair solar projects. Actually, I think Enel a couple of years ago paired geothermal and solar together. Ormat is procuring more storage and thinking about how to do storage on its own or perhaps storage with the geothermal plant. So the people, the industries that have not done well in the last few years are thinking a little bit more creatively about the sectors they can branch out to, the applications they can serve, and who else to partner with. Yeah, I just talked to a geothermal developer who is having a tough time getting a power purchase agreement, who just realized that they could make twice as much money if they co-located with the greenhouse um, and sold the greenhouse heat and electricity as opposed to worrying about a PPA. Absolutely. I'm going a little bit further out on the fringe and talking about blockchain. That's my pick of the year. It's not a new concept, obviously. Blockchain is this ledger system underlying the cryptocurrency Bitcoin that allows all parties to verify transactions and simultaneously track those transactions. It's like a distributed security system of sorts for digital transactions. 2016 was the year that people started applying this for real in the energy sector and built real pilots. Earlier in the year, you'll remember that we had Paul Brody of Ernst & Young on the show. He was formerly of IBM. And he talked about applying blockchain to smart devices and the electric grid. It was actually one of my favorite shows of the year. Soon after that, we saw a few pilots using different versions of blockchain for energy transactions. And most recently, Siemens partnered up with this startup, LO3 Energy, to use blockchain for peer-to-peer transactions in a microgrid in Brooklyn, New York. And we're talking about a really small project here. But with many of the world's industrial giants behind the concept, it's now being taken more seriously. And we'll likely see a few more interesting projects in 2017 where this concept gets proven out. Yeah, on that front, I'll, um, I'm on the board of the Rocky Mountain Institute, and um, I'll let them explain exactly what they're doing through a press release. But just as a teaser, they've put together a pretty great um, group of people to actually you know, um, get to a product that will work for the energy sector in the shortest amount of time. And so I agree that blockchain is is really, you know, entering the fold, the commercial fold. Yeah, it's really cool. It blows my mind. And uh, I, I really like that episode too, Stephen. Yeah, Paul was really articulate. And it's just such a hard topic to wrap your head around. He did a great job of explaining how it can actually be applied. Um, and on that front, I'll say another application is the is monitoring efficiency on a meter level. And I know that the EE meter run by a guy, Matt Golden in California, who's a real advocate of metered energy efficiency, he's been using blockchain and his meter that he's developing to track energy savings. So it's it's happening in small areas. Okay, ladies and gents, it's time to fire up our solar-powered, geothermally heated, battery-backed 2017 Predictometer, made with, of course, recycled shipping containers and LEED-certified bamboo. We've been tinkering around with the Predictometer all year, and it's now fully built, just in time, before we close out the year. So Catherine is currently punching in her personal identification number, and the Predictometer has just spit out her prediction for 2017. What does it say, Catherine? Okay, you know I'm not going to be able to just give one prediction, but federal and state policy. So on the federal side, Congress, guess what? There is no more gridlock. There's going to be, we've got to defend all of our solar wind credits. Um, We need to watch out for things like repeal of PURPA or pulling back on anything that could could affect uh, Federal Power Act. 
and instead focus on infrastructure and getting more storage and transmission provisions in any federal legislation. And then on the state, I really think the Southeast is going to open wide up. And I know we've talked about Florida, but I think other states are going to open up. But I think we need to shift our messaging to not just grassroots, but very much conservative messaging to get to the legislatures that are in red states and really push solar because once you get it in there, they don't want to give it up. Jigger is uh, now yelling at the predictometer. He's he's just a dumped a martini in the backup generator. It's now doing its calculations. What is it telling you now? Well, I you know I think the first thing is that the I want to give kudos to Bill Gates and and company to put together the billion dollar fund. I think that billion dollar fund will shift away from uh, investing in new technology and instead focus on the first commercial deployments of these new technologies, um, you know, largely known as that valley of death. And I think you'll see that fund focus on the valley of death. So that'll be my first prediction. Um, I think my second prediction will be that I think that small hydro will finally get their day in court. I think under the Trump administration, um, a lot of the cabinet picks and other folks have been big fans of small hydro and haven't figured out how to really get that into the conversation. And so I think you'll see small hydro take on a much uh, bigger focus for, um, for the Trump administration. Okay, it's my turn now. Just making some adjustments to the drive, putting it into fortune cookie mode. And here we go. It's spitting out my prediction Okay, let me uh, read the piece of paper here. It just says, meh. Oh, oh, wait, that was last year's prediction for 2016. Okay, let me see here. Making some more adjustments, and here it comes. The predictometer says, theories get you thinking, sweat gets you results. Okay, in all seriousness, that is an actual fortune I have on my fridge at home, and I'm actually using it to make a somewhat bold prediction. And feel free to hold me to this if the wheels start to fall off the car in 2017. And this is basically an extension of what we were saying during our cabinet picks discussion. As I've said a couple of times on this show, the Trump administration does not represent doomsday for renewable energy. I was talking about this at the Young Professionals in Energy event last week with Jigger, actually, in San Francisco. And I think we do need to separate climate change policy from the drivers that are helping renewables. Um it's becoming clear that we're in a world of trouble when it comes to federal climate policy. I really do think that there's <laughs> there's going to be a lot of dismantling that takes place. But we all know that renewables are mostly succeeding because of favorable economics, because of state policy drivers, utility regulation. And we all know that they have ridiculously strong bipartisan support around the country. No matter who Trump puts into office, the administration just can't take that away, Right. For example, none of our growth scenarios at GTM Research take into account the clean power plan, and we expect to see very strong growth for distributed energy because of the local factors. Could we see valuable programs at DOE stripped down by Governor Perry? It's likely. Is that a problem for America's competitiveness for developing future technologies, the stuff that Bill Gates wants to promote, as you said, Jigger? Yeah, potentially. Like, I don't think we should gloss over it. But I don't think we're looking at a doomsday scenario. Now, the word of the year is normalization. Do I want to normalize the decisions that are likely going to be made? Do I want to make people think that this is normal? 
No, absolutely not. But the industry has succeeded in the face of lost funding, inconsistent policy, opposition, because of the unshakable passion of people who want to see it succeed. And obviously, that's more important than ever. So a lot could be said about President-elect Trump. Clearly, he's malleable, and he, he puts a lot of faith into business leaders. And guess what? This business speaks. Advanced energy is worth more than the pharmaceutical industry. There are more jobs in solar and wind than in oil, gas, and coal. More Republican districts than Democratic ones benefit from wind. And Fortune 100 companies say they're going to do more deals for renewables than fewer under Trump. So sweat gets you results, and that's the best asset for this industry in 2017. You know, your sweat, your ability to get deals done, and your ability to, to prove that the clean energy transition is the most important economic opportunity of our time. So that's what I've got. And the Energy Gang podcast will give you the insider information needed to put all that effort in the right direction. <laughs> that's Amen. Right. Yeah, speaking of religion, I would love, Stephen, to give a big shout out and thank you to all of those people who listen, who come to the Church of the Energy Gang religiously, whether it's every week or just on major holidays. It's been it's great to know that there's so many people out there who listen to us. Yeah, this is our time of the year to thank each other and to thank all of you, because the passion that comes from our listeners is really infectious. And it's why we enjoy doing the show. And whether you disagree with us or agree with us, I think we all find common ground in trying to digest the crazy roller coaster of stories that fly at us week after week. And so, you know, we're here trying to figure out this stuff just the same as you are. And I think that forms a special relationship. So thank you to everyone who listens to this show. And I guess with that, it's going to do it for us for 2016. We'll be back on the week of January 9th to see if any of our predictions play out over the year and to help you prepare for the wild ride we're all in for. Please help us spread the word about the Energy Gang. If you can leave us a review or rating on iTunes, it does go a long way toward helping us promote the show and lift us up the rankings in iTunes. You can also leave us a rating on Stitcher as well and pass this podcast on to your friends or colleagues. We also want to hear from you on what you want us to cover in 2017. We can always be reached on Twitter, and you can send an email to podcasts at greentechmedia.com. We will be sure to pass your note around. Thanks again to everyone who makes this show possible, and as always, thanks so much to Catherine and Jigger. Catherine, happy holidays and happy new year. Thanks to you too. You guys have been amazing, and it's fun to talk to you every week. Absolutely. This is my favorite part of the week, as I always say. Jigger, same to you. Hope you close out the year well. Thanks. Oh, and one other thing. We forgot to mention the biggest business deal of the year, the acquisition of GTM by Wood McKenzie. Absolutely. Plays into the trend of the big energy companies. Obviously, Wood McKenzie serves the top 100 energy companies in the world, and they're really interested in getting into the renewable space. So a, uh, a good marriage for us, and this podcast stays the same within that partnership and uh, we're going to continue to help you understand everything that's going on both in fossils and in renewables with katherine hamilton and jigger shah i'm stephen lacy and we are the energy gang a production of greentechmedia.com we'll catch you in 2017